Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on moviehousememories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. Welcome back to the golden age of the silver screen on the MHM Podcast Network, where each episode we review a film from the 1930s or 40s. I'm Chris. I'm Lori. And I'm Patrick. And today we are reviewing 1938 screwball classic, Bringing Up Baby, directed by Howard Hawks and starring Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant, Charles Ruggles, and from the Thin Man films, Skippy the Dog as George. But we know him better as Asta, don't we, Lori? We do. Uh, but before we get into the shenanigans, Patrick, you've got a three-hour summary? Something like that, okay. yeah. Dr. David Huxley is a mild-mannered paleontologist who is desperate to acquire funding for his museum and its dinosaur bone exhibits. He's about to complete the assembly of a skeleton of a brontosaurus, which needs only one last bone, the intercoastal clavicle. Let me say that again. The intercoastal clavicle. Is that a David, real bone? Is I don't it, think so. Or is that a screwball bone? <laughs> I think it's a screwball bone. <laughs> David's anxiety is amplified by the stress of his impending marriage to his fiancée, Alice Swallow, which is to happen the very next day. Alice, Alice reminds David that he has a meeting with lawyer Alexander Peabody, who represents a potential wealthy donor, Elizabeth Random. Miss Random is considering making a million-dollar donation to the museum. David goes to a golf course for his meeting with Mr. Peabody. At the golf course, David is consistently frustrated with his lack of progress with Mr. Peabody. The attorney does not want to discuss financial business during their golf match, and then David encounters the flighty Susan Vance, who not only takes over playing David's ball during her golf game, but ends up stealing David and his car before David can have his conversation with Mr. Peabody over the donation during lunch. Determined, David sets a second meeting with Mr. Peabody at a posh restaurant. Once again, David encounters Susan, who constantly gets David into trouble. After knocking David down with an olive, Susan hands him a purse that belongs to the wife of affluent psychiatrist Dr. Fritz Lehman. Once David gets himself out of the conundrum, Susan accidentally tears the back of his formal dinner jacket. David returns the favor by accidentally tearing the back of her dress off, leaving Susan's underwear exposed to the world. David assists her by walking her out of the restaurant, but he misses his meeting with Mr. Peabody for a second time. The next day, Susan calls David just as his intercoastal clavicle is delivered. David wants nothing to do with her, but when she feigns being attacked by a tame leopard named Baby, David rushes straight over to help her with the dinosaur bone in his possession. Once at Susan's, once at Susan's, he discovers that Baby is tame and loves to hear the song "I Can't Give You Anything But Love." Susan tricks David into company. Susan tricks David into accompanying her and Baby to her farm in Connecticut so that she can drop off the leopard. Along the way, Susan steals a car to avoid having to pay a parking ticket for her own car, and David becomes covered in chicken feathers after Susan causes a car accident. Once at the farm, Susan allows David to take a shower to clean up so that he can be presentable for his wedding. She 
He sends David's clothes out to be cleaned. In reality, Susan has fallen in love with David and wants to keep him at the farm. Susan's aunt, the wealthy Elizabeth Random, arrives at the farm and instantly, and instantly takes a dislike to David. David is unaware that she is the same person that he is trying to get the donation from. Elizabeth's dog, George, runs off with David's intercoastal clavicle and buries it somewhere on the property. Without the bone, David can't return, so he calls Alice to tell her that he can't make the wedding. That night, Elizabeth entertains her friend, former big game hunter Major Horace Applegate, for dinner. During the conversation, Susan learns that baby was sent as a gift for Elizabeth from her brother. David constantly watches George and follows him everywhere in the hopes that he will reveal the location of the missing bone. After Elizabeth's gardener, Aloysius Gogarty, I don't know, Gogarty, sees baby, the zoo is called to help capture the animal. Susan and David go out together to find the bone and baby. During their adventure, they accidentally free a second, more dangerous leopard when they come across the new leopard being taken by a nearby circus to be destroyed. David and Susan eventually track a leopard to the top of Dr. Lehman's house. They attempt to sing to it, but they only wake the psychiatrist and his wife. The police are called, and David and Susan are soon arrested by Constable Slocum. Slocum does not believe Susan's stories about being the niece of Elizabeth and chasing a leopard through the Connecticut countryside. Due to confusion and misidentifications, Slocum soon has Elizabeth, Aloysius, and Major Applegate behind bars as well. Susan talks her way out of the cell by pretending to be a gangster known as Swinging Door Susie. However, she sneaks out of the jail and steals a car to locate Baby to prove their stories. Mr. Peabody arrives at the police station with Alice and verifies everyone's identities. Baby walks into the police station, and Slocum has him placed into a cell for safekeeping, despite his tameness. Susan returns a short time later, dragging the very irritated circus leopard. When David informs her that the leopard is not Baby, Susan panics. David rushes to her aid and shoes the leopard into an empty cell before he faints and collapses on the floor. Sometime later, Alice calls off the engagement to David. David continues to work on his brontosaurus reconstruction even though he will not receive the donation from Elizabeth. Susan suddenly arrives at the museum and provides David with the missing, with the missing intercoastal clavicle. Susan climbs a ladder to talk with David. She informs David that she has received her aunt's million dollars and that she wants to donate the entire sum to the museum. David tells Susan that the day he spent with her was the best day of his life and the couple confessed their love for each other. However, Susan climbs onto the brontosaurus skeleton when her ladder begins to fall. David saves her, but the, the dinosaur skeleton is destroyed. David resigns himself to the life of chaos that, will, that he will experience with Susan in future years as they embrace each other as a couple for the first time. And that is bringing up baby. There was more screwball in the actual film than that. Yeah, screwball doesn't translate very well to a summary. <laughs> That's why we have Lori on tonight. She's bringing the screwball. Correct. She just brings her A game on screwball. You know it. Yep. Uh, Patrick, uh, this is a beloved film. How did it do when it first came out? All right. Bringing in Baby was released on February 18th, 1938, the same year as Boys Town, Alexander's Ragtime Band, Test Pilot, You Can't Take It With You, 
and the Adventures of Robin Hood. Made on a budget of $1.1 million, it grossed $1.1 million at the box office. Uh, the film has been recognized. It, it was not nominated, nominated for any Academy Awards. The film has been recognized several times by the American Film Institute. In 1998, uh, on their 100 Years, 100 Movies list, it was initially ranked number 97. Uh, when they redid the list in 2007, and they moved it up to number 88. On 2000's AFI's 100 Years, 100 Laughs list, it was number 14. On 2002's 100 Years, 100 Passions list, it was at number 51. Uh, in 2005's 100 Years, 100 Movie Quotes list, it was nominated uh, for the line, it isn't that I don't like you, Susan, because after all, in moments of quiet, I'm strangely drawn towards you. But, well, there haven't been any quiet moments. Uh, that, that did not make the final list. And in 2008, it was nominated for the category of romantic comedy film in the AFI's 10 top 10s list. It did not make the final list or the top 10 list, if you will. Uh, Bringing Up Baby has been adapted several times. Uh, Howard Hawks recycled the nightclub scene in which Shepard Stress is torn, and Grant walks her behind her in the comedy Man's Favorite Sport. Uh, Peter Bogdanovich uh, essentially remade the film in 1972 uh, uh, in the film What's Up Doc, starring Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill. Uh, and 1987, Who's That Girl with Madonna is also loosely based on the film. Entertainment Weekly voted the film 24th on the list of greatest films of all time. In 2000, uh, readers of Total Film Magazine voted the 47th greatest comedy film of all time. In 2006, Premier Magazine voted it one of the 50 greatest comedies of all time. In 2000, sorry, I don't have a date for that one. Uh, Premier also ranked Gary Grant, Cary Grant's performance as Dr. David Huxley 68th on its list of 100 all-time greatest performances and ranked Susan Vance 21st on its list of 100 all-time greatest movie characters. The National Society of Film Critics uh, included ba bringing up baby in their 100 essential films list considering it to be arguably uh, howard hawk's best film it's also included in the book a thousand one movies you must see before you die and in 1990 in the second group of movies uh, placed into the national film registry in the library of Con congress uh, it was uh, nominated for that list and finally, uh, Rotten Tomatoes has it at 94% critics and 89% audience. And that is the numbers on bringing up baby. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but he also recycled that little dress scene in El Dorado with Robert Mitchum and John Wayne, if I'm right, in the, in the jail. Isn't that correct? Yeah, but I think Mitchum went full-blown, full Monty oh, with that one. Okay, <laughs> It was the Wild West, so. So let's talk first about the director. You mentioned in this that some people think that this is Howard Hawks's finest film, which I won't agree with because he's made a lot of wonderful films. But in the films we've reviewed of his, uh, what did you think of this directing style? Lori, I don't know how many you've reviewed with us, but the John Wayne films for sure, because he made that, that damn uh, Rio Bravo three times. And Red River, um, what did you think of Howard Hawks? And would you consider this his finest? I love this film. So I think that uh, I think he did a fantastic job directing this film. Um, I know it wasn't 
well received at the time and and I think he struggled I heard I've read that he struggled with with making it but um as far as his finest I I don't know I'd have to it's my favorite I I can't say it's his finest film because I like Rio Bravo better than this film um possibly possibly I'll say his finest comedy uh, of his career. I think that might be fair to say. I mean, he's done some good ones. I know he did gentlemen, gentlemen prefer blondes. I, I always like, I was a male war bride, but I think this one is better than that one. I'm trying to think of something else he might've done. He did ball of fire, but I don't think you reviewed that with us. I did not. He did. He does. He did his girl Friday. And I really like that. You know, I, you know, maybe this is, I would say this is, I like his girl Friday better than this one. You know, I, I do like this one, but this is, uh, I think His Girl Friday is possibly better. But uh, it, it's definitely up there as one of his best comedies. It's, I, I don't think distinctly it's, it's one of his, uh, it's his all-time best film. But it's a really, really good one. Now, this is the second film we have reviewed with Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn. They did, what, what did we say, four total together? They did four. Now, these two have great chemistry together. And one of my complaints about the Philadelphia story was that I never believed that Cary Grant and, um, Oh, why am I? And Jimmy Stewart, I never felt that they should be vying for this woman because she was loathsome. However, in this one, this is one of my favorite Catherine Hepburn, uh, performances. And I really enjoyed her flightiness and her desire for him. But I, I keep comparing it to, maybe unjustly uh, to the Philadelphia story. And Patrick, what do you think of Catherine Hepburn in this one? Well, she's more fun. I mean, she, her character is much more fun and less uptight than the character in the Philadelphia story. So I think it's a more enjoyable performance for her to watch. Now, the Philadelphia story is one of my all time favorite films. I put it in my top 100 films of all time, but I think a lot of that because there's three outstanding performances from Jimmy Stewart, Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn. In it, and that's why I, kind of give that one the edge i really do enjoy this one it's slapsticky fun um but it's slapsticky the philadelphia story has a lot better dialogue i think uh, more wit to it than this one and this one has a lot of pratfalls which you know it works okay um but it doesn't it doesn't hold that classic viewing for me i i, I don't get into slapstick nearly as much as i get into great dialogue you know slapstick isn't my favorite comedy but this is my favorite slapstick movie. I don't know. It just works for me. It, and it always has ever since the first time I saw it as a kid. I just think it's funny. I love the character of Susan. Um, she's so zany yet sweet and fun. And I just love Catherine Hepburn's performance. And she and I watching it this time, I realized, I think what I love about it is she reminds me in this film so much of Lucille Ball. And I love Lucy. So much of it was, was, um, bits that they, I, I think that, that they used in I Love Lucy, which is one of my all time favorite television shows. So, um, I, I love this film. Um, I would, I would like to put it in my top 100 if I could squeeze it in there. Oh, wait, that's a different podcast. That is a completely different (laughs) podcast. You you can squeeze it in on this one. I'm so glad I'll get to review this for three podcasts. (laughs) There was something very endearing about her character in this, even though 
I know she would drive me mad, just like she drove Cary Grant's uh, character in this. But I also would watch a movie that she did with as Swinging Door Susie. I thought that was hilarious how she turned on a dime in the in the jail. The jail scene for me was a little too long, but that was kind of the highlight for me, where she just tells the cop what he thinks she is, and in her in her voice, I really enjoyed that part. That was good. Yeah. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Now, other than Harrison Ford, Cary Grant might be in Patrick's uh, top list of favorite actors. Uh, Cary Grant doing Cary Grant. I don't ever see him doing a bad uh, role when he's playing this character. Uh, Charming as ever, bumbling as ever. And uh, uh, I thought he was also great. Patrick, where do you put this one in his your Cary Grant performances. Oh, this is easily in, in my top, probably my top five of Cary Grant performances. I mean, I, I, I do really like Cary Grant. He ain't, he ain't no Harrison Ford, but, uh, you know, he, he didn't do enough, uh, action adventure or science fiction for my taste, uh, for an actor to be in my, my, my best, my favorite actor of all time. But he's just such a comfortable actor that I just love his watching him on the screen. And he has a presence no matter what role I've ever seen him in. And, you know, when he has chemistry with his leading lady, like he does with Catherine Hepburn, because yeah, I've never seen Sylvia Scarlet, which is their first performance, but I own Holiday, Philadelphia Story, and this, all on Criterion. And I love all of them. And they're all, all really, really great performances. Um, but I've also liked him in so many other films. You know, I Was a Male War Bride, I really like, uh, Operation Petticoat, uh, Father Goose. I mean, there's a, a whole litany of films that I... I've always loved Cary Grant and this is him in his absolute prime. I mean, this is him at his most dashing, uh, his most debonair, even though he's kind of playing a bumbling, uh, role. And many people characterize that, that kind of, uh, uh, you know, nutty professor type of thing, not the Jerry Lewis nutty professor, but kind of that a bumbling scientist or doctor or something like that, that he created it. This was the template for everything that followed behind him. Uh, and he plays it to perfection. Is this the one that Christopher Reeve most modeled uh, Clark Kent after this role of Cary yes. Grant? Yes. And I, and I I noticed it when he touches his glasses. That's how Clark Kent. Christopher Reeve is Clark Kent. Yes. Touched his, <laughs> that's where I mo- noticed it most. You forgot to mention um, my favorite wife and arsenic and old lace. Patrick. I know, I know, but there, there. I mean, there's <laughs> so many films of his yeah, that I he, love. He, he doesn't give a bad performance, in my opinion. Yeah. I didn't match, mention to catch a thief. I didn't mention North by Northwest. True. I didn't mention Charade. I mean, there's a, a lot of great films and great performances. True. How can you put Harrison Ford above him? Come on. How can I? Because I grew up with Harrison Ford, and I, as an adult, I've learned to appreciate Cary Grant. Okay, I'll give you that. So, Harrison Ford is a lifelong uh, love affair of uh, an actor's work. And Cary Grant is more of uh, a consistent studying of film once I became cognizant and was fully developed and mature and have an adult understanding of film. Which is why the screwball comedies are so great. No, they're not. (laughs) This one is this. Well, the, the three I mentioned are. I think Arsenic and Old Lace is my favorite. I, I I forgot about Arsenic and Old Lace. That's my favorite screwball. And then this, and then 
well, at least of Cary Grant. I love You Can't Take It With You. It's totally screwball. Have you guys, did we review that for Movie House? We have not yet. I love that, that movie. I, maybe I like screwball more than I thought. I, I think you do. I honestly <laughs> think you do and you don't realize it. I think so. You should I was have been on the podcast when we did Seems Like Old Times. I don't think I've ever seen that movie. It's it's not a great screwball comedy. Oh. <laughs> Any other actors that that stand out to you in this one? I like the whole cast. Um, I love her her aunt, uh, and I love Aunt Elizabeth. I love the way she says it. I can't say it like that. Um, I love the um, which is, is it, Mister Peabody? Mister Peabody, the lawyer. And I just, I love every character. And the animals were amazing. How did they do the, what I, and I was looking for it. I couldn't find anything. How did they do the scene where the dog and where, and where Asta and I mean, George and. Um, He's forever Asta to me. George is not a good name. <laughs> and the leopard were playing wrestling. How did they do that? They really did that. <laughs> Yeah, I, that, I was I was fearful for poor Asta. That was not fair. Right? That was that was before they had uh animal wel- welfare. Before CGI. Yeah. Although yeah. you this film is noted for the use of a lot of 1930s special effects to keep that uh cat in its cage and away from the actors for a lot of the scenes. Yeah. It, it, Laurie, once we get to reviewing this for Criterion there is a portion where they talk about essentially the special effects of where uh, they, they, they did multiple takes, uh, not moving the camera and just walking uh, act, the animals or the actors through this, this screen. So there's very few scenes where they are together. There's a lot of ba- uh, rear screen projection, like when they're in the car driving baby to Connecticut. That's all rear screen projection. They're in the foreground and baby in the back is, in, uh, is a projection because there was an accident, there was a near accident with Catherine Hepburn during, towards the beginning of filming where she was wearing that dress and the, the, uh, the leopard came out and I guess there was some metal to keep the dress hanging and kind of loose and at the bottom and he took a swipe at Catherine Hepburn and after that they said, okay, uh, <laughs> we're, we're going to do something different here. So uh, like the scene where there, uh, where, I'm trying to remember who walks in first, but it's a series of people. It might be Peabody or somebody walks in and then uh, the leopard walks in and then George falls the leopard in. That's three separate takes. Actually, I think it's the guys from the circus is the first take and then the leopard and then George. And that's three separate takes. But the way they show it on the film, it looks like one seamless cut. I can't wait to watch that because I was fascinated I don't remember as a kid thinking much of it because I just thought, oh, it's movie magic. But this time I was really watching it thinking, and Catherine Hepburn was fearless with that leopard, the way uh, she. Apparently did. not after the first incident. <laughs> yeah. That, that <laughs> well, was I don't blame her. Beginning. That was at the beginning before they had the accident. Cary Grant was terrified of it. Cary Grant did not like the leopard. Don't blame him. But it's funny because Baby, the leopard that played Baby, was really much friendlier than the circus leopard. It, it was, was the kind same of same animal. It was I, the same animal. I don't think it was. The other think, one was the circus one was bigger, right? I think in the making of the reference that there's two different leopards. It was funny how distinct their personalities were. 
let's talk about the story because when when we say screwball comedy, this was like this was like turned up to eleven screwball comedy. It just didn't stop, and and for me personally, it kind of got to me, and uh, I I just needed a rest. And I after I watched the film, I don't remember Howard Hawks's exact quote, but something that he wished he had put more straight actors or straight characters into this film. And when I read that, I'm like, yeah, I I wish you would have too, because that was my only main gripe about this film was that it it was just, they just did not stop. It was one gag after another. And it got too much for me. Like, cause what was this an hour and 45 minutes and about 45 minutes into it. I'm like, I need a break. I need a break from all the craziness. But did either of you have a problem with all this screwball comedy? I didn't. Um, but you're right. I mean, there is a lot to be said for a straight man um, with comedy. Um, and and you're right. There there wasn't. I, I mean, the the straightest that they got were was still wacky. <laughs> but um, I I liked it still. But I I can see some. Sometimes, especially at the beginning, um, Susan, she could be annoying. Oh, I hated her for the first 15 minutes or so. But then as the movie went on, I'm like, oh, she planned that off the beginning. She's got a thing from since the beginning. And so I understood it. And she very much grew on me after the first part of the film. Yeah, there's a sweet vulnerability to her that you don't often see from Catherine Hepburn, you know? Uh, yeah, I'll agree with that. You know, once again, referring to the criterion, there's much discussion, including um, uh, interviews with Howard Hawk, where he says exactly what you said is that you know he he blames the lack of success for the film as there was too much craziness that the the film desperately needed someone who was not so over the top um, and that the audience could relate to that made the uh, having all these kind of crazy characters on screen at the same time made the film unrelatable. Um, I, I don't quite go that far. I still think it has some charm to it. I still think there's some fun to it, but it is unrelenting. I mean, there is just one, you know, just oh, so bizarre circumstance after another throughout the entirety of the film that you really don't get a, a moment to really appreciate it, these characters who are supposed to be falling in love with each other. Cause although I get why Susan, loves david i never get why david falls in love with susan because his life is utterly and completely turned upside down within about a 24-hour period well she was much more exciting than the woman he was going to marry who was a stick in yeah the mud. we didn't see enough of the stick in the mud yeah but, she, but this it was clear the stick in the mud didn't really care about him i mean they made that clear no um, no i get why he doesn't like um alice i i i, I completely understand that but why would he like susan any better i mean because me, because they, she would they, their pair off is extremes They're, she's just the exact yeah. opposite of I, I saw it as because she would do anything for him and um Include just, ruin him. <laughs> com- yeah, exactly completely literally threw herself at him <laughs> in in a few years in 1941 howard hawks makes ball of fire and Patrick, if you you haven't seen that one, I would definitely add that to your list, especially, uh, well, Gary Cooper's in it. I don't know your opinion on Gary Cooper, but it's Barbara Stanwyck, and I absolutely love her. And she's probably in in all of my favorite actors 
ever, she's a she's a top three. So I'm biased when I say this, but I think Howard Hawks pulled off the screwball comedy in that one much better because I think he learned very much from the mistakes that he had made in this one. So I, I think that that's why Ball of Fire is more of an enjoyable overall screwball comedy, even though I do like the the chemistry between Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn. I haven't seen it yet, so I'll give it a chance. I'll give it a, I'll check it out at some point. You've seen the cartoon version, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Seriously? Yeah. It, it, it's loosely air quotes. If you could see me loosely based on it. Okay. Ball of fire based off Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs yeah. or vice versa. Barbara Stanwyck is the Snow White character and Gary Cooper and all of his professor friends are the dwarves. Uh, anything else we want to talk about? There's no music. I was going to say, there's absolutely no music. Matt's favorite music. (laughs) Well, with all the screwball in it, that would have just muddled it too much. But you're right. It was pretty much just the uh, opening theme and the closing, wasn't it? Nothing else? Yes. Once again, also pointing out in the criterion, absolutely no music in the film other than uh, the credits opening up the film and the credits closing the film. And uh, the guy singing the cat roars. (gasps) Oh, and the the record. Them singing. Oh, I, what, what was the song? Do you remember now? I can't about love. Yeah, that. Utterly ridiculous. Uh, Lori, what was your favorite laugh out loud moment for you in this film? Oh wow! I have to pick one. Huh? Uh-huh. Put you on the spot. Yes, you did. Um, I don't know. The first thing that comes to mind is when she rips her dress and he's following her, and she won't listen to him. And he's, you know, trying to keep her from being exposed. That was, that was funny. Patrick. The dinner uh, at the aunt's farm where Cary Grant is constantly getting up and following George out the door and then coming back in, just following the dog around and they're all staring at him and him coming back in portions of the conversations, you know, like, I, I can't remember where they say he went. It's like, oh, you went here. And he's like, I've never been there. Yeah. <laughs> She's trying to make up that he's a hunter and he's been to yeah. Africa. What is that noise? Well, that's a leopard. <laughs> so I, I thought that once again, I thought the clever dialogue of that there, there's a little bit of slapsticky with him following the dogs, but he's not falling down on stuff. I just thought it was such a, a bizarre circumstance. And I thought Cary Grant played it to perfection. Yeah. I, I enjoyed that scene too. But the, the one that amused me the most is when they're at, going after George and he's calling out George's name and, and Catherine Hepburn is right behind him. George, I don't know why it made me laugh so much, but she was so endearing and annoying at the same time. And uh, it, it was a great performance from her. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the more other, well, obviously there's the famous line where he, he screams at the ant. I just decided to go gay, you know, <laughs> that. I mean, I'm that surprised has, by that line, actually. Well, there's a lot of controversy of what was in, intended by that line is that, you know, I think we take more into it and we make more of it in today than it was back then, because although it was a reference to homosexuality, it wasn't really in the vernacular that much. It was more commonly used for someone who is going to be happy. But the fact that he's wearing a woman's bathrobe when he jumps up the air like that uh, is, is, you know, it it takes on a a, a much different meaning meaning in today's world. Uh, But I also like when they're out following George around and he, and they dig up a shoe and he has it in his hand and he feigns like he's going to hit 
uh, George and she says, don't hit, you know, don't hit George. And he's like, I wasn't going to hit George. <laughs> so <laughs> it's hard to pick one. There is, there's so many funny moments. Well, 142 minutes of, uh, pure <laughs> goofiness. Yeah. Machine gun. <laughs> and what was the deal with that particular nightgown that they stuck men in? Because didn't John Wayne also wear something very similar? I forget which Western was he was with May West. Was it maybe? Oh, was, uh, I know it's when you're talking about, uh, I can't I, think, but, uh, he was wearing something very similar. It's, it's almost like, uh, maybe it was just the nightgown style of the day. I don't know. But uh, when I saw him put it on, I'm like, what is it with these big hunky guys that they got to put them in this sort of outfit? I think it was just so overly frilly and feminine that it it instantly identified that as a woman's bathrobe. I'll just say that Carrie was much more comfortable in it than John Wayne was. Well, you look like it. It's what he down the set when he wasn't in costume. Well, sometimes a fella just wants to feel pretty and there's nothing wrong with that. All right, let's go around the table here. Uh, after all is said and done on a scale of one to five, do you consider this film a bad one or do you give it a high five? Lori, I'll start with you because I think you already said this was a top 100. Yeah, five leopards. <laughs> Patrick, how many leopards are you going to give it? You know, I, I really do like it. I honestly, like between this and Holiday, it's very, very close. I, I, I give, you know, I put the Philadelphia story in my top 100 of all time. This comes very close to reaching there, even though it's a slaps, slapsticky film. I, th I still think there's a lot of really, really good dialogue and funny sequences in the film that aren't necessarily involving pratfalls. Um, but I kind of, I, I slightly agree with uh, what Chris's criticism and Howard Hawks crit criticism of his own film, that it's unrelenting in it's uh, zaniness, if you will. Uh, and that's why I wouldn't put it in my top 100 and I wouldn't review it on, movie house memories, but apparently I'm going to be reviewing it with Lori at some point. Uh, but I would definitely give this uh, four leopards. Is that what we're saying? Leopards? Sure. Okay. Four, four leopards. Well, I am going to give it three and a half leopards only because uh, the screwball comedy got to me. Uh, it was just too unrelenting. I will say though, that out of all the Catherine Hepburn performances I've seen that this is, this is a top two. I liked her in Africa. Um, Africa. <laughs> I liked her in the African Queen, but um, she was an absolute delight. Especially since the last film of hers I saw was the Philadelphia Story, and I absolutely did not care for her character in that. But it kind of makes me laugh because at the same time this came out, they they said something like she's the she's box office poison or something, and this is one of her finest performances that, that they that they're saying this at the same time. So. Yeah, but that's a criticism on box office returns in its time. This film developed an audience over the 60 years that followed, you know, or now 80 years that followed essentially. And, you know, it's, a, it's much more appreciated today because she had a resurgence and the success of the Philadelphia story, which brought her back to box office prominence, caused audiences to come back and revisit this and Holiday and a lot of the other films where she had a lack of success for a period of time. Well, on that note, that is it for our review of Bringing a Baby. Please let us know what you think of the film in the comments section. And for our listeners over on moviehousememories.com, please rate it from one to five stars on that page as well. If you enjoyed today's review, 
please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, the MHM Podcast Network, where we have many, many more film reviews from yesterday, today, and beyond. Until next time at the big show, when we will review another classic from the 1930s or 40s. And it very well might be Cary Grant, because I think this is our year of Cary Grant reviews, isn't it, Patrick? I don't think it's, I think we're doing Ocean's Eleven next. Oh, okay. A heist. That's what we need is a good heist. Very, very different. Uh, Well, that's it for this show. I'm Chris. Lori. And I'm Patrick. And that is a screwball wrap. podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The song Hyperfun is brought to you by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the golden age of the silver screen, the MHN Podcast Network, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted.